Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 14 of Middlebrow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Ghana. Curtis Adams, a.k.a. Uncle Adams, was born and raised in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. In his early years, he fell in love with hip-hop music and soon discovered his natural knack for rhyming syllables. Starting out as a freestyle MC, he quickly progressed from performing at parties to performing in front of large audiences at local clubs and bars. Through years of hard work, dedication, and perseverance, Uncle Adams has established himself as a powerhouse MC on an international level. But he's not just a rapper. He's also a motivational speaker, a role model, and a oh. counter-bully. As far as the musical side of things, Uncle Adams is definitely not your typical rapper. Listen to just one of his songs and you will soon understand why. Uncle Adams chooses to write songs containing material that is inspirational, motivational, educational, fun, and personal. Formerly a heavy equipment operator by trade, Uncle Adams has funded all of his music, recording, advertising, merchandise, equipment, and video production independently. Curtis has been an uncle since the very second he was born. In fact, he has a nephew who is 10 days older than him and doubles as his best friend. Naturally, growing up, all of his friends called him Uncle. Adams is his last name, so the name Uncle Adams virtually formed on its own. Derek, that's the uh, biography of famed rapper Uncle Adams... (laughs) Uh, on his own website, and uh, I think he might have written it himself. It definitely sounds like someone uh, penning their own Wikipedia entry. I've got a couple notes, though, Isabel. Yes. Uh, by the way, who the hell are you? Oh, I'm, I'm Isabel. I got a couple notes. One, uh, the city in Saskatchewan is pronounced Regina. No, fuck you, it's not. That's... Yeah, it 100% mm. is. Who... This is not a bit. That's... Mm. <laughs> Did, have they ever like thought about rechanging that pronunciation because the kids there are too into it? <laughs> I mean, I'm not even from there, and I'm into it. <laughs> okay, so so we got Regina. Uh, what's your what's your second note? Um, this uh, I, this is more of like a uh, like a suggestion for the edit because you're the editor on this show. Um, can you put like some very winesome strings behind that? Because that's the saddest fucking short story I've ever heard in my life. Oh, Derek, you don't even know the saddest part of Uncle Adams. I believe we've talked, I feel like off air we've talked about Uncle Adams a little bit, but. Like in, in the chat, we talked about Uncle Adams once. I forget the context. Probably like failed musicians. Well, failed is an interesting term to use for Uncle Adams. For those who don't know, um, <laughs> Uncle Adams is a, a rapper, but he's funded everything like he says himself. But that means he is currently thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Because he put out a mortgage on his house. He actually doesn't, I don't think, has even has a house anymore. He sold his car. There was one, he had like a vlog where he was showing how he was like continuing his journey as a musician. And there's one episode of the vlog where he signs up for a credit card at uh, Home Depot so he can buy saws there and then sell the saws on Craigslist. <laughs> uh, uh. He's a man who's sure of himself. Let's say that. <laughs> I mean, 
Con- confidence is good to have. It's a good. It's a good tool to have in your uh, in your arsenal until you become like the living embodiment oh, of capitalist realism. Well, that was depressing. What the hell is this about? Oh, I was going to say, um, there's one more quote I'd like to, to tell you, just because um, this guy's a rapper, and by ra- this, rappers of course, are cool. I mean life. Uh, so yeah, his uh, website also has an achievements section under his bio. He has performances, his inspiration, and achievements. Um, his inspiration is great because he says the word people about 15 times. But his achievements section, um, you know, rappers are cool. Rappers are hip and, and new and modern. But uh, Uncle sure. Adams is a unique rapper because uh, due, to, due to the positive nature of his music, Uncle Adams is endorsed by governments, police, paramedics, school principals, teachers, parents, students, youth organizations, and various other high-ranking public officials. I really love that it just says governments <laughs> as a catch Governments, plural. Governments love Uncle Adams. Is it the, is it the Saudi government? Does like? Did you know that it was illegal to dab in Saudi Arabia? Oh, thank God. I have to move to Saudi Arabia now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> might, might I advise against moving to Saudi Arabia for their anti, anti-dab stance? I'm sure that that's the only thing that's, like, a problem there. Oh, 100%. Everything else is going smoothly over in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, everything is hunky-dory over in Saudi Arabia. Um, Hopefully hopefully that will get taken out of context for for propaganda purposes. For all of our um, Saudi listeners, what is the point of this podcast, Eric? Oh, man. Uh, For for our listeners in Saudi Arabia and everywhere else, this is Metal Brow Madness. Uh, Ostensibly, what we do here is we... Uh, when we, at the uh, onset of this show, Isabel put together a massive 256 movie bracket. Uh, the list is composed of the Internet Movie Database's top 250 films of all time list. And uh, to round out the bracket, to make it a uh, an even 256, uh, we both added three movies that uh, were just bubbling under uh, the 250. And uh, our goal here on Middle Brown Madness is to find... The best film of all time, asterisk, a.k.a. the best film on this list, according to us. <laughs> um, so we each have three ringers, and we also have four vetoes that we started off with in round one. Uh, since this is a two-person operation, there will be times where we don't agree, and sometimes someone just wants it more. And so that's why we had these vetoes. We both have three left. Uh, I used my veto to uh, move Raging Bull ahead once upon a time, and uh, Isabel used it to move ahead a film that is very, very important to Middle Brown Madness lore, Three Idiots. How would you feel if we found out that Mohammed bin Salman was a big fan of this show? I would be conflicted. What if he offered, what if, uh, what if Mohammed bin Salman offered to fly us out to Saudi Arabia to perform live for him? Would we take that money? I mean, we could donate it, obviously, (laughs) but like, would we do it? (laughs) <laughs> oh man no it's it's easy for me to say no because i don't even have a passport okay neither do i look at that we could get passports just to go to saudi arabia oh man and sell out to the saudis rather than sell out to like bad dragon or whoever we're just gonna sell out to saudi arabia i mean it'd be a very american thing of me to do oh man we will continue the great uh movie uh, the great cinephile tradition of saudi arabia a country whose first exhibited movie ever officially was the Emoji Movie. So, <laughs> so uh, Middle Brown Madness doing doing live from Dubai would be just no. That's the Emirates. That's a different country. Yes, you fucked that one up. Yep. 
Total ignorant wrestler right here. I was going to say, have Maybe. you ever seen the Emoji Movie? Because I have, and I have... I, ha- I have not. It's not bad. I listen... I listened to the Flophouse episode on on the Emoji Movie, which was good. I think the Emoji Movie is perfectly okay. It's probably just dull as dog shit. It's not actually. It's, there's a lot of stuff that happens in it. You get to see like visualizations of Spotify and Instagram. They go into the <laughs> Just Dance app, which I was not aware was an app. I thought it was just a video game, but you know. They go into Candy Crush. Um, they go to Dropbox. You know that famous That's... thing that kids love? Dropbox? Yeah, they yeah, kids love Dropbox. Um, what it sounds, what it sounds like, is, it just sounds really crass. There is one genuinely beautiful moment in the Emoji Movie, and it's um, what do you call meh? Meh, which is uh, oh no, he's calling himself Gene, I guess. He's a he's a meh emoji. I want to preserve that first sentence in amber. <laughs> um, so uh, Gene goes to I think the uh, Instagram app, and his sure. dad is there too. I believe, or his mom. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but the point is, they go into the Instagram app and they walk into someone's picture, and it's like a time-frozen 3D diorama of that moment that someone was in, and it's genuinely beautiful moments. Uh, the rest of the movie is, is fine. Uh, I will not be seeing the Emoji movie anytime soon. Unless it's on this list, who knows? Or for a future episode. I'm, Maybe we'll do I mean, like a, like an inter an interquel where we uh, talk about the Emoji movie. Um... I mean, maybe, I guess. I mean, it's definitely not on this list. But let me tell you about a couple of movies that are. We've got two matchups, as we do every episode. Uh, see how I just rested control back? Go for it. You can keep going. I believe awesome. in you. So we have The Sting versus No Country for Old Men. And we have Leon the Professional versus Knights of Kiberia. Uh Oh, yeah. So let's, let's just jump right into uh, the first of these matchups. The 99 Seed. We do a little tale of the tape. The ninety-nine seed, The Sting, released in nineteen seventy-three, directed by George Roy Hill, written by David S. Ward, starring Paul Newman, Robert Redford, and Robert Shaw. Uh, one hundred and sixty million dollar take on a five point five million dollar budget in nineteen seventy-three dollars, and seven for ten at the Oscars. It was the big winner that year. Uh, best picture, best director, uh, best original screenplay, art direction, costumes, editing, music. So. Uh, uh, a, a bona fide classic, you might say. That I've never really thought of as a classic for whatever reason. It's always kind of stuck out in my mind. I actually didn't know what he's even about until I watched it this time. It's about literally a sting. Yeah. But it doesn't have like, it doesn't seem to have a cultural tale that I would think it should have. Yeah, I guess we can get into it when we talk about it. Yeah. Uh, the opponent, the underdog in this particular fight. Uh, and again, this is the second time this particular set of directors has been the underdog, and it's fucking weird to think of them as that this is no country for old men the 158th seed in this tournament released in 2007 directed written and directed by joel and ethan cohen based on the novel of the same name by cormac mccarthy starring tommy lee jones josh brolin and javier bardem uh a hit 172 million dollar take on a 25 million dollar budget four for eight at at ugh. Four for eight at the Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay, and in a little bit of editorializing, entirely deserved, all four. Is this the, no, we had, um, didn't last episode, we also had another Best Picture versus Best Picture? That's correct. Wow. Last, yeah, last episode we had, it was All About Eve and a Beautiful Mind. Or was it two episodes ago? Two episodes ago. ago, but still. This is a little, this is a little higher caliber. I agree. These, but I think both these movies would win against either of those other movies. 
yeah. But we'll get the to sting, that. Let's the talk sting about ver- the sting for a second. All right, so this is our second movie that was directed by George Rory Hill that stars the 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 twin titans of seventies of seventies sort of male acting, Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Uh, the first one being Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which, if you recall, we we both quite liked, and I actually quite liked this as well because yes. it's because like the other one, this is very very charming and it's just. Paul Newman and Robert Redford doing stuff. And that's sometimes, sometimes all you need in a movie is two very, very charming dudes doing stuff. Yeah. And I think that, uh, just right off the bat, I think this is a better film than, uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, mostly because it doesn't ever aim for profundity. Mm. Like, I feel like, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, like, reach exceeded its grasp a little bit where it was attempting to say say something quote-unquote say something and the sting certainly has like smaller things to say like it's clearly like an anti-racist film even though the only black character like leaves pretty quickly into the film yeah Yeah, spoiler alert he dies 15 minutes in um it's a film about you know crime technically and about like police corruption but at the same time those things don't really matter in any sort of way it has that michael mann kind of thing of the tragic uh romance mixed in with the crime obviously before michael mann but it's just yeah. a goof the whole movie is a big goof just a bunch of string strings of goofs and each of them was more entertaining than the last one i genuinely had a great time throughout the entire thing i would watch this again in a second whereas like butch cassidy it's, has has lulls it's uh you bring up michael mann and there's also this other strain in this movie where it's like uh the the minutiae of a crime mm-hmm like the mo- the movie Thief came to mind a lot, absolutely. Where it's just like you know the- these ruffians just thi- th- uh, thinking up a grift and executing the grift. Obviously, the style's a lot different. This is like self consciously like classical and old timey, whereas Man is like deliberately kind of forward looking. Um, like there's some like Scott Joplin shit all over the sa- all over the soundtrack on this. Uh, everyone is like dressed in like the Great Depression finery. This is an Edith Head costume joint. Which is awesome. She worked a lot with like Hitchcock and stuff, and she's like the one costume designer, the classic one classic era costume designer I can name off the top of my head. Thanks in part to They Might Be Giants. <laughs> that's that's one more than me. Um, and also there's like a, a a great like murderers row of character actors in this that I didn't mention already. I mean, there's Robert Shaw, there's Charles Durning, Ray Walston, Charles Durning, um, and Jack Kehoe, Robert Earl Jones. Lee Paul. Yeah, the the one I was thinking of was Charles Durning, who I'm more familiar with as uh, as a uh, as the as uh, the dude in uh, Oh Brother Art Thou. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, he's kind of like a a Cohen repertoire player, right? Yeah, he's in or was um, I think. Actually, you might you might be wrong. I think that might be the only one. Is that the only one he was in? Oh, he was in the Hudsucker Proxy as well. So two. Ah, uh, that's the one. I guess I, I guess two movies doesn't make you a stable member. Yeah. He was also in um. A movie I quite like, the uh, film adaptation of Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman. Uh, he was in a bunch of shit. He was in Dog Day Afternoon. He mm-hmm. was in... Uh... Yeah, he had quite a... He had a, he had a distinguished career, I would say. Um, so yeah, this is... This this movie has what I like to call Bugs Bunny energy. Yes, very, where it's very like, much so. Where it's just like, ah, it's a couple of wise guys putting one over on on the people pursuing them. It's like, oh, I'll get you, Robert Redford. Ah." Nothing ever has, like, high stakes, even when murder is on the line. 
yeah, there's like you know, there's this movie has like a body count, but it's it's really light for a movie that fe- features like you know, like pr- like that basically features race motivated murder right at the top. Yeah. Um, and and that the the uh, one of our characters is basically fleeing their own death the entire film as well. Uh, this is uh, Robert Redford, yes. right? Yes. Um, yeah, this uh, uh, George Roy Hill, who uh, the the George Roy Hill movie that I'm more George Roy Hill had a, like a wild 1970s, and I think he's like kind of like like he's not someone with. I think I must have talked about this during the whatever we were talking about uh, George uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but. I think George Roy Hill, even though he's like a multiple time Academy Award winner, is kind of unheralded as like a, a like a, a popular seventies filmmaker. Well, because you the because other ones are like auteurs. You don't think of George Roy Hill as an auteur exactly, even if he does Not he does really. in his own way have his like specific style, specific themes. And I think his version of Slaughterhouse Five is kind of fascinating. But you don't Slaughterhouse think Five of him fucking as rules. Way. Yeah, like what a way to adapt uh, that film or adapt that pet yeah, that th- book. I think I think Slaughterhouse Five has some of the best match cuts in movie history. Yeah, like up, like up there, and and his like this is his run from sixty nine to seventy seven. This is the five movie run: Butch Cassidy, Slaughterhouse Five, The Sting, The Great Waldo Pepper, which is another uh, Redford joint, and then Slapshot, which is one of the great sports movies of all time with Paul Newman. And that's a very impressive five movie run. Certainly, um, not a single bad ask movie me about. Ask me about how I think Slapshot is one of the great movies about Rust Belt Ennui. Not today, but later. I, I just assumed since you're Canadian, if it's, if it's a hockey movie, you have more opinions about it than I do. So you say that, but I haven't seen, like, Goon. Really? Which, by all, by, by all measures, I should have seen it. seems like a it. very Derek I, movie. I would probably like it, because, um, uh, well, you know, I, I, like, I mean... You're a big Sean I, William Scott fan? Yes, I'm a I'm a I'm a, I'm a Stifler completist. I mean, hey, he was great in uh, Southland Tales. That's right, he's in that. One of the best movies of the new millennium. But we don't. I don't. Unfortunately, I, sadly, it's not on this list. I still have not seen Southland. Which is Tales. fucking wild to me. Um, because I'm really hoping that I've, the that the release that they're doing pretty soon uh, is going to have the extended cut on it. Uh, everyone else in Dim the House Lights likes that movie, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Like, I know that me, Ross, and Juan all love it. I don't know what Chris's feelings on it is. I guess we could just ask. Uh, but, I th- okay, so how much time do we have left on The Sting? Uh, not much. We are basically done. All I did want to say before we end, um, that Charles Durning was also in a movie called Kinky Killers in 2007. <laughs> so, uh, so you can check that so out if you did- want to, but the, uh, the cover looks wonderful. <laughs> so... Is it people killing kinky people or kinky people killing people? Patients of sexy psychiatrist Dr. Jill Kessie and eccentric attorney Alexander Hathaway are being murdered in bloody satanic rituals. Law enforcement investigations reveal that sex and mutilation are the signatures of a serial killer who likes to tattoo each of the victims after they are murdered. Lead detective Barry Harper discovers that some beautiful professional women are prey, or are they doing the praying? You said this came out in 2007? Uh, yes. Because this sounds like some shot on video shit from 1984. Doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. But the, the <laughs> cover is 100% 2007. Oh, Lord. Okay, well, on on that note, like like Char- Charles Durning being the link here, I guess, between the two. Let's talk about uh, No Country for Old Men. 
A movie that we also qu- b- both quite liked. A movie with some of the kinkiest killers out there. <laughs> one, <laughs> one, one killer with a very kinky haircut and a kink and a and a kinkier weapon. Yeah, this is. I think my sixth time watching No Country this year. <laughs> I watched it literally last night, even though I've I've seen it. Um, sorry, only three times this year. Six times overall, according to Letterbox. But is this one of your dungeon movies? No, you said this. Like, I think we agreed last time this was not a dungeon. That movie. this was not a dungeon movie. That's true because I think, it's, I think we said it was more of a dungeon movie than whatever the fuck we were talking about. But I think it was Apocalypse Now. Yes. Um. So, No Country for Old Men. Is it the best Coen Brothers movie? I think. I think that's like the easy way out. I mean, I would. I would either say this, or I would. Uh, I mean, I'd probably go with A Serious Man as like the actual best, best one, but. I don't really re- rewatch a serious man that much. I think it's a better right. film, but it's a it's a lot. Of, it takes more work. It's a more difficult more, film. This film yeah, this is, is a lot more easily just goes down so simple. Um. Yeah. So this is like just just a down and dirty crime deal from from the brothers Cohen. Um. Basic plot. Um. Guy stumbles on some money that he's not supposed to have. Someone comes to track it down. Yeah. That that easy, and then those two guys are tracked down by the law, who is played with great uh, flippancy and stoicity by uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who is a severely underrated, I think, in this film. Like he's this is one of his best roles, and I think he easily competes with uh, Bardem and Brolin in terms of who's doing the best work in this movie. Oh, everyone's doing great work. You got Garrett just... Dillahunt, who is I think secretly one of my favorite actors. Like I love everything he does. Um, Kelly McDonald, Pacific made... Rim, from Pacific yeah. Rim. Is he in that? He is not in that movie. What? I was thinking Ooh, from right? like uh, Assassinator Jesse James, The Road, Looper, the, Twelve Years a Slave, the fuck Last am House I on the Left, of, The Believer. He's in a lot of fucking really great movies. I really don't. Are you thinking of Charlie Human? No, I'm, ty- I'm thinking of someone else from from Pacific Idris Rim, Elba. <laughs> no, I'm not thinking of Idris Elba Isabel. I don't know. Maybe you thought that Garrett Dillahunt was a very different person. Uh, I'm googling Pacific Rim. Uh, are you thinking of uh, Charlie from It's Always Sunny? No, I'm not thinking of Charlie Day. Who the fuck are else. you thinking of? That's what I'm looking at. Who am I confusing this guy with? Hold on. Oh. What I can think of is Charlie Human. I'm thinking. Of, I was thinking of Burn Gorman. What a name! Oh, he was Good. he was the dude in that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, he was the dude in that. Why was that of confusion for you? I don't know. Your brains are weird things. Okay, fair enough. But um, yeah, deep bench, and I think the thing that I we're going to come back to this film because sorry, like not to give spoilers, I think it's going to beat the sting. But I think um, it's going to beat the sting. Um, the thing I think we're going to come back to is that there's so many. I think the reason I can watch this film over and over again is not just the fact that it's entertaining, like genuinely really fun to watch. It also I think is is one of the perfect middlebrow films in that it's. It's fun to watch, like it's entertaining um, for just an Very average audience member, but it's also kind of really weird. Like it's it, you don't really realize how weird it is till you break it down. Like what what each shot is trying to do and how they're trying to progress certain things and the amount of faith it puts in the audience to be able to follow what's happening, even though it's just- elliptical a lot of times. It cuts out things that are usually essential to these kinds of films, and it has so just much the- attention oh, cool. to detail. Yeah, just just Bardem's character. Everything about that character is like that's a decision. Yes, that's a call, and a lot. And I guess some of that, I guess invariably, is McCarthy. But a lot of that is just Cullen. Yeah, 
I think like a lot um, of the ways they choose to shoot it, the ways they choose to like direct that, certain things, like something as simple as there's the insert shot of when there's a famous gas station scene and there's the insert shot of like he crumples up that um, bag of like seeds and puts it on the mm-hmm. counter and there's an insert shot of it just expanding back out. Sure. Which is such a perfect, wonderful moment that you usually don't get in a f- in films. Um, it reminded me a lot of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, not David Bowie, obviously, Roy. but uh, the director. Nicholas Roy? Uh Yes, exactly. Like, he, he used the same level of, like, detail in his film, the same level of specificity, uh, especially in um, Bad Timing is the name of the film. With yes, with Art Garfunkel. Uh, with Art Garfunkel. Yeah. Uh, the use of that reminded me a lot of that film, which is also an incredible film. But um, I'm going to let you talk for a second before I talk about one of my favorite things, and the thing I talk about almost every time I talk about this movie. Okay. Um... This was my second or third time rewatching this movie. It's fucking dope. It, I, I just, I, I'm kind of just a mark for like crime movies where someone's chasing a bag of money, and when someone is chasing the person chasing a bag of money, it's like <laughs> it's why I like like Elmore Leonard shit. Yep. Um, it's uh, Woody fucking Harrelson is in this movie. I can't believe I forgot that. He's so good in um, it too. He's very good. Like when we talk about the great American actors, it's a shame that we don't talk about Woody Harrelson very much because he's just been doing good work for like 30 fucking years and in like every conceivable genre in any case he also um, i just want to say real quick he has one of my favorite line readings in this film which is when uh he's asked to give his appraisal of anton sugar and he just like slurs out he's a psychopathic killer but so what and it's like the way he <laughs> says it it's so like rhythmic and it's like he's not giving a shit which is perfect for the character but also perfect for woody i i love it it's a great moment um this movie ends really poignantly and I think it's kind of it, – it, it, it kind of ties into this thing you were talking about, this being the perfect Mill Brown movie, because I think this whole movie kind of prepares, uh, for lack of a better term, average viewer for that ending, which is one of the great endings in movies, full stop. Yeah, 100%. And it, it's wild that a film – like if you just take that ending out of context and say, hey, here's a crime movie, here's how it ends – it's, I would not guess that that thing is going to make $171 million. No, it was a genuine hit. And I don't know if it's still the biggest hit. I don't know. I remember True Grit doing very, very well whenever that came out, which mm-hmm. I think was the movie they made after that, right? Uh, yes. So they were they were like in a moment, like this is where the Coen brothers got their mojo back. Oh, no. Burn After Reading. And then A Serious Man Revolt after that. Oh, Man, shit. that's a great run. So, yeah, uh, fuck what was it no country serious man no burn after reading serious man true grit and then inside lewin davis and then oh fuck that's a great five movie run yeah oh not not a not a bad movie not even a not even a okay movie those are like five like good to great good to masterpiece movies absolutely oh god mm. so what did you want to talk about what's the thing that, what's to- the thing you like talking about <laughs> my favorite thing to talk about in this movie because it's one of it's some one of the things that so many little choices that add up to so much more to me is mm-hmm. the way that both um, Moss and Sugar treat their wounds after they get hurt. Okay. Um, because oh. – uh, I see. Okay, sure. So it's not just the fact that these are – I love movies with details and I love movies that show exact processes for things and exact processes. Mm-hmm. Like I like seeing things made by hand, like ready-made solutions for problems. Mm-hmm. But um, the way that each one goes about solving their like injuries – is so like perfect for their characters. Like obviously early on Moss gets shot in the shoulder and then 
you see him like pulling the buckshot out of his shoulder later on, patching himself up, going and getting some new clothes, everything like that. Whereas Shigur gets shot and he lights a car on fire, basically makes a car bomb and then steals a bunch of medication. And then my favorite moment is um, to disinfect like his giant leg wound. He pokes a bunch of holes in the top of a, uh, of a bottle of, uh, I think it's like iodine or something like that. And he shakes it up and uses it as like a spray bottle. And it's such a little moment that I just find so satisfying to see is like that exact process. And that, of course, of course, this character would solve this problem in this way. Of course, this character who is like this cold, distant, almost unfeeling like force of nature acts in this like precise, exact sort of way. He seems to know exactly what to do in every single moment. Like he's prepared for this. Like it's happened many times before, clearly. And it's, I just, I really enjoy it. I can't, I don't know if, if you get what I'm saying with that, but. No, I get it. I get it. It's like a metonymy. Exactly. Um, and it, so, I just like watching people in movies clean their wounds. I don't know why. It's, it's very fun for me. I've done two podcasts in my life with the little DTHL crew. Stuck in the Middle with you, I do with someone who is really into people in the movies who are beat up and bloodied. <laughs> And the second podcast that I'm doing, Middlebrow Madness, is with somebody who enjoys seeing people sew themselves up. So well, do, I okay. don't. <laughs> in, in my defense, don't you have you ever like um, I don't know if you got any shenanigans when you were a kid, but did you ever come got, home like as a kid where like you were like covered in blood and like you had like a giant like cut or something, and then you like wash it off and like clean it and everything like that, and then isn't that like satisfying? I mean, it's satisfying in that I will know, I know that it will start hurting less and it'll start healing up. But also, that's just like my day to day. I own, I own, I have two cats. Fair enough. Like I, I sent pictures in the chat of like my cat Ruby, who is adorable and who is very nice and gives me hugs all the time. Fucking carved up both of my arms and hands not too long ago because she was picking a fight with the other cat. And so- I did the thing that you're not supposed to do when cats are fighting <laughs> is you pick them up with your fucking hand. The thing is, with hands, you can grab a thing. So, you know. You can. I agree. That's what they're made I, for. I took the L on that, but, you know. No, I just, like, I like, like, um, like, I, in a way, like, when I, I used to skateboard all the time, I used to, like, BMX bike, and, like, when I would fall, True. it would almost be satisfying in some way, where it's like, oh, there's blood all over my arm, I get to clean that up, like, it would dry, and, like, cleaning up that up, and then, like, repairing it, for some reason, it's own kind of satisfying. I don't know if that even makes sense, or if that tracks anybody I- else, but... I mean, it kind of makes sense, but you're kind of talking about treating your wounds like I would have talked about getting a fucking Happy Meal when I was six. <laughs> you know? Is, is it that different? A little bit. They don't sell okay. blood at McDonald's. Well, I mean... You, I mean, I mean. okay, let's not I open mean, that let, fucking bag of worms. Let's not fucking... Let's not, let's not tread the well-trodden territory of, uh, is there blood on McDonald's hands? <laughs> I could get out my like fan- my like high horse, my vegan high horse, and like sit on that for a while. We can have that discussion. We're not going to do that. That'd be sort of the worst fucking thing in the world. We could talk about Morgan Spurlock if you'd rather. Oh God, no! Let's just move <laughs> on to Knights of Kiberia, please. Well, before 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 we even get to Kiberia, we've got to talk about Leon, and before we even talk about Leon, we got to crown one of these two movies the winner. Oh yeah, it's No Country. <laughs> It's no country. Sorry, sorry, the Sting. You're really good. About, I, re- I did really like the Sting, and I I wish it would have gone against something I wouldn't have liked as much. So I could have watched it again for this podcast, but instead I'll have to watch it again in my own time, like some sort of scrub. Like I don't know. You could just you could just like uh, hop the uh, the George Roy Hill completion train and just kind of like fill out your fill out your holes with what's left. Like, have you seen Slapshot? No, I haven't. I 
that is a good raunchy ass movie starring the sexiest man of the seventies, Mr. Paul Newman. <laughs> but if I'm not if I'm not doing something for content, Derek, if I can't create content out of it, what's the point? I mean, you you could just probably write a tweet about it saying I watched Slapshot. It's misogynistic as fuck, but it's fun as hell. I don't think I'd get a lot of engagement on that one. I gotta check my engagement numbers on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> How many people are following you for the hockey content, Isabel? Um, a hundred percent of them, probably. <laughs> Uh, I mean, fuck. apparently, uh, I, I'm on Twitter now, and a thrash metal band just followed me. So maybe they're there for the hey. hockey. Maybe they're there for the hockey. Um, so let's talking. Let's talk about something that's a little less pleasant than hockey. Okay. Which, to be fair, is most things. But okay. uh, among them is anyway. Let's let's just fucking set this up. I was trying to do a segue, and I failed. Uh, so matchup number two today, number thirty, Leon the Professional, written and directed by Luke Bassan. I know why I said it like an Anglo. Uh, fucking uh, written and directed by Luc Besson. Uh, directed, but, uh, not directed, but uh, starring uh, Jean Reno, Gary Oldman, Natalie Portman. Uh, $46 million take on a $10 million budget. And uh, went zero for seven at the César Awards, which is the French equivalent of the Academy Awards. Uh, got donutted against uh, the... Uh, I did say that Leon was the 30th seed. The 30th seed, uh, Isabel. Good lord. I mean, I like we'll get we'll, we'll get we'll, there. We'll get there. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Uh, against the two hundred and twenty-seven seed Knights of Cabiria, written and directed by well, directed by Federico Fellini, written by Federico Fellino, uh, Federico Fellini, Ennio Flaiano, Tullio Pinelli, and Pier Paolo Pasolini. <laughs> everyone's um, favorite. Everyone's favorite. Um, Pasolini fucking uh, st- rules. It's it sucks. That there's none of his like um stuff on his list. What would be on this list of Pasolini's? Honestly, it would probably be Salo. People like that's the most famous. <sighs> that's and, the most famous. And and like, like like this is a list of famous shit. But like, I think that Salo, which is not a movie I <sighs> to say that I like it would be a lie because it's kind of a torturous watch, literally. Yes, but for, I think for but, what it's trying to do, I think it's pretty incredible. I think. I mean, it's. There's this whole wave of movies from Italy in the 1970s that are very brutalist in construction, and this might and that and Salo might be like the epitome of it. Yeah, I think it's 100 percent uh, accurate thing to say. Uh, so Knights of Cabiria, starring a lot of people, but mostly uh, Giulietta Messina, and uh, I, I didn't really find budget stats on this, but it did win best foreign language film at the Oscars that year. So what do we talk about when we talk about Luc Besson? <laughs> um. That's a really big question. Uh, should we should we talk about his movies first? Should we talk oh, about man. him as a person? I, I mean, I, I think before starting this podcast, ca- I was not as aware of the fact that he's apparently a terrible fucking human being. But yeah, he's not great. Um, I think oh, like, here, pop, here, let's start a shit sandwich. Let's do a sh- uh, good things. I think he makes really good movies. I, yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of his movies are pretty good. I really love The Fifth Element, like still love The Fifth Element. Lucy, I think is a favorite for the whole group in uh, Did the House Lights. Yep. Um Valerian and the Save a Thousand Plants, I actually thought was pretty good. I think people really underrated it when it came out. I want to go back and watch Subway. That's his first one. Yeah, I think that'd and be interesting. And The Big Blue seems like it could be a thing. Basson has like a style. It's like this askew like it's I mean it it's kind of now synonymous with kind of like cheap French knockoffs of American movies. Sometimes that works, and sometimes that doesn't. And in in his movies, and as we'll discuss in his life, I think he gets a lot. 
and at the risk of sounding very insensitive and crass, I think he gets a lot of I think he gets a lot of slack because he's French. Uh, I don't think I don't think you're wrong. Honestly, I think I, that's it. I say this. You I say, say this as, as a as French, French Canadian. Person. Yes. Um, and Leon, uh, well, I'm 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 German, so I should probably not be too mean to the French. <laughs> uh, Leon, uh, uh, a favorite of budding cinephiles because it's an uh, it's kind of a crime action movie presented in kind of a, a, a skewed fashion. We were talking about choices just now with uh, No Country for Old Men. This too is a movie that takes that that makes choices. They're not as like um subtle or uh as like thought not thought out, but they're like there are a lot of surface there are a lot of like sort of surface level kind of aesthetic choices and not like they're not grace notes. It's a lot of Besson's movies are taking uh, a trope and Making it a little askew. Oh, you know, Jean Renault, the hitman who drinks milk. Haha. The, the, the fake name that they use to check at the hotel is MacGuffin. Haha. Clever. Um, Clever's, I guess, a way to put it. That's one way to put it. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's kind of silly, but uh, see, I, I don't want to make this. There's a lot of reasons to not like this movie, and I don't want to spend this whole time dunking on my, 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 my the, the country of my ancestors. I mean, but if, if we're, if we're going to continue the shit sandwich session, this is the shit section and we should talk about the problems uh, that we have with him and with this film. And then we can end it with you saying the things you actually liked about Le- Leon. Is that fair? Okay. Yeah. So uh, Luc Besson knocked up a 16 year old back in the day. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. He sure did. <laughs> and started dating her when late. she was 15. Yeah, I found this out late. Like, I found this out, like, within the last 18 months. I found this out, like, uh, two weeks ago, whenever I watched Leon. I was like, because, okay, spoilers. <laughs> we I watched Leon, I was like, hey, there, I have some problems with this. What was <laughs> Luke Besson thinking? And then I went to his Wikipedia page, I was like, oh, that's, that's what, what Luke Besson was thinking. And I think- So, like, pray, the, tell, pray tell, what problems might you have with this with this motion picture, Isabel? I mean, the elephant in the room is that uh, one of the main characters in the film, Leon the Professional, is um, played by Natalie Portman. She was um, 12 at the time of filming. Yeah, 12, 13, something like that. And the film shoots her sexually. Like, there's no way to really get around it. The film um, shoots her in certain ways that she's supposed to be sexually appealing and presents her as, like, a person who is attempting to have sexual agency and a sexual relationship with Jean Reno's character. And this is never presented as like the worst idea in the world. <laughs> yeah, not like if if we're feeling real like at our most charitable, we could say that Luc Besson shoots Natalie Portman in this movie sometimes like she's someone who fucks. <laughs> Which at is at the most charitable. Ghastly. Yeah. At the most charitable, yes. Um and for those who maybe are not clear on the math there, uh Jean Reno, our, our good friend Jean Reno, was, uh, let's see if I'm doing my math correctly, uh, carry the three. Uh, Jean Reno was uh, 46 at the time of the shooting of this film. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, Jean Reno is an old man now. He's 70. That's kind of sad. I like Jean Reno quite a bit. And, like, I do, like, we'll get to, like, the section at the end, but I do think Natalie Portman does a really good job in her role. I don't think it's obviously, like, she was 12. It's not her fault how she was shot. It's not really something you can sure, control sure. over. But he, this is uh, – we're going to have to put a trigger warning at the front of this episode anyways. Um, so yeah. I'm just going to, like, be, like, super clear about this. Um, I'm not going to be explicit. But if you've been on, like, 
the bad parts of the internet, as I'm sure, like, I, I, I was on 4chan a couple times when I was a kid. I was on Encyclopedia Dramatica, all that kind of shit. The kind of people who also post, like, Lolicon and are really proud about being into that really like this movie. <sighs> and I think that that's a damning statement in and of itself. Yeah, if, 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 if... <sighs> What a weird sentence that's going to come out of my mouth. If child pornographers are into your film, maybe something went wrong up the chain. Yeah, maybe a little bit. And like, we were discussing this before on like, how do you fix this in this film? And I, I really do think it's as simple as A, change how she shot. Um, also yeah. po- possibly change up some of her costuming as well, because Jesus. Oh, uh, she she wears some shit that, yeah. oh man. I know the 90s were a different time. I know that like 90s fashion is like different. Yeah, but, but uh, still. Jesus Christ, eh? Um, so that, and then plus, if you just have Leon say, hey, I'm not going to do have this relationship with you because it's wrong, because you're 12. If he just said that, but instead they construct this, like, he never says that. Instead he says, here's why I'm sad, and here's this tragic here's backstory wh- I have. He literally says, this is why I'd be a shitty lover. <laughs> not, Which is yo, not you're 12. How you, <laughs> not how you deal with that situation. Like... <laughs> I, I don't want to sound. Like, I don't want to sound like a prude. Oh, like I, I think that there can be good movies about really gross and awful things. Here's, and I here's think the there, thing: there, there, there are good movies about pedophilia. Uh, where, or there's like I think that Happiness is a great film. That's a film that that portrays its pedophile in a way that's like genuinely interesting and also has the right amount of condemnation for him and portrays it as a terrible thing. And there's also movies. There's a version of this movie where it's cha- where it's relatively chaste and it's kind of funny and goofy. This movie yeah. tries to straddle a line where it's trying to be, oh, this is fun, like we're just relaxed, we're just having a good time, but also, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I'm Luke Besson. <laughs> I dated a 15 year old. Here's the thing. I'll do you one better. There's a great tradition of European exploitation films about this exact subject that are gross and damning in equal amount. There's a Serge Gainsbourg album about this. Yeah, and... Um, also, I apologize like, to all the French people for pronouncing his name, however I just pronounced it. Gainsbourg, s'il vous plaît. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, so now I got... Now, I, now this is the point in the conversation where I've got a cape for the parts that I like of this sure. movie. Yeah. Um, Gary Oldman fucking kicks ass in this movie. Absolutely. Noted, He's shooting so much scenery, and that's really fun. Noted dog shit human being, Gary Oldman. <laughs> yeah, God. Oh, Lord. Um, uh, well, the performances are not the problem here. I mean, some of the pr- some of the parts are underwritten. I mean, it is a Luc Besson movie. Characterization is not one of the strong suits of uh, of, of, of this uh, particular writer-director. Um, I, like, the okay. Even before I knew of Mr. Besson's backstory, this the shine kind of came off of this movie because this is like an okay action movie with some, like, goofs. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think it's like the best of his films. No, I would definitely prefer um, Fifth Element or Lucy over this. I think I think this is like the gateway drug because it was an American production. I think mm-hmm. that's probably why Fifth Element was is also kind of one of these gateway movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I will say one one scene that I did want to point out that I liked quite a bit is the opening scene where um uh the character the uh, titular Leon like uh, is trying to um basically teach someone a lesson, and he right. leans out of the darkness. And, like, holds a knife to a guy's throat. And then, like, to leave, he just leans back in. And when you get a wide shot, there's no way he could have left the building. But it, like, takes an almost magical realist moment of, like, him literally becoming one with the shadows. 
It's a, it's a, a, a genuinely a great a great shot and like a great cut and a great edit. Fucking Les Claypool looking motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> God. Yeah, this is kind of a movie that's at war with itself a little bit. Um, because yeah, I, 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 I really want to appreciate it as like sort of the, the like the goofy action lark that it so desperately wants to be, but there's a a a lot of it. And maybe this is just me aging out of it. A lot of it seems kind of precious and cute. Yeah. When not just outright disgusting. <laughs> like, I still gave this movie three stars. I think there's plenty of, plenty of shit to like here. But there's, like, there's a lot of this, like, a lot of this movie is just kind of precious and uh, French, I guess. <laughs> there's, there's, like, there's uh, a lot of French movies, like, that are like French comedies or French action movies, not like art films or whatever, but like French genre movies, like Lockout, like Lockout. But Lockout's different because Lockout is like I think it's like it's a awesome. production. It's it's also awesome. There's a strain of like there's a strain of like preciousness about it that I can't really jibe with. That's why I mean, the French hate me. Who's that like one like French director everyone fucking loves? Uh, Mister Mister Amelie. Uh, Mr. Genet, Jean-Pierre Genet. Yeah, I think who, like who, his... who directed Alien Resurrection as well. <laughs> we'll get to Amelie because it's definitely on this list, but uh, I'll save uh... my criticisms of him until then. But is it in, is it on here? It has to be. It's like it's the like foreign film that everyone knows. Eighty five. It's facing off against Shutter Island. Oh. Interesting matchup. Let's say that interesting. It'd be a very interesting matchup. So yeah, there's like a strain of yes, like the preciousness. preciousness in French genre cinema that is like either either you vibe with it or you don't and I generally don't and I, I, that's not it's not really different here I must have aged out of it um the action shit is fine the goofs are fine and like the older I the older I get it seems the more like like the, like the Natalie Portman subplot plays a lot more different when you're 16 I'm 31 yes. now yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, hooray. <laughs> hooray. Um, but now we get to talk about um, our, our buddy, Frederico Fellini. Fred Fellini. Is, uh, we talked about him. It like, feels like just like a week or two ago we talked about him. Uh, yeah. The last time we talked about him was... Two weeks ago. Well, two episodes ago. Two episodes ago, we talked about eight and a half. And uh, now uh, this is a movie that is uh, before that, correct? Uh, that yes, a... I believe almost immediately before that. So this is this is one of the eight and a half. Uh, yes. Oh, this is not almost immediately before that. I don't know why I said that. This is fifty-seven, and then eight and a half is sixty-three. So, so it's it's before. Um, yeah. So yeah, Knights of Cabiria is really fucking good, <laughs> and struck me immediately as an Isabel movie as 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 it wrapped up, <laughs> especially in its second half because. Yes. It, it kind of it kind of uh, reminded me of a movie we had created that we had covered previously on the show One Winter Light. Yeah, I, w- I would say it also reminds me a lot of uh, Cleo from Five to Seven. Yes, the Agnes Varda film. Um, yes. So yeah, this is functionally a movie starring uh, this. This is uh, uh, so Julieta Messina plays a, uh, a a sex worker, a woman of the night. Mm-hmm. And we are introduced to her getting pushed into the river by by a John, I guess. I think it was supposed to be her pimp. Oh, it was supposed to be her pimp. 
I, I might be inaccurate. The, the way is, he's never seen it again. In relatively Some speaking, doesn't dude, matter. it doesn't matter. Some guy. Some asshole. And uh, most of the people that uh, that uh, that uh, Kabiria uh, frequents are are assholes. Um, her friends are kind of like her friends are kind of like mean to her, and uh, basically, basically, she spends half of the movie trying to get like trying to get her dude back. Uh, she spends the second third of the movie uh, trying to ask the Virgin Mary for forgiveness, and spends mm-hmm. the third uh, third third of the movie. Uh, getting shat on by the world and apparently being at peace with that. <laughs> yeah, that's a it's a good way to structure any film, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, uh, the world shits on you. You exist in the world, and the world continues to shit on you. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, when you say it's like a very me movie, I was je- I was kind of dreading this going in. I think we talked about that previously before because, um. I was like, well, I didn't really love Eight and a Half, and Eight and a Half is more like my style traditionally. I like like stylized things. I like weird things. I like things sure. a little bit more out there. Whereas Nights of Kabiria is more or less a realist film. Yeah, it's kind of like a, an old fashioned, you know, like sort of not a kitchen sink drama, but like you know, it's 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 realistic. It's like um, what's the word I'm looking for? Grounded. Uh, I different yes, but different word. Um, it's. Um, it, it it has verisimilitude. Okay, verisimilitudinous. Yes. So I was genuinely surprised when I went in and I just found myself falling more and more in love with the film. I think that Julieta Messina is incredible in it. Like genuinely she's one of her performances ever that I've seen because she switches between this. She's often compared to Chaplin, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is a super accurate comparison. Like the way she uses her eyebrows, the way she expresses things, her physical, her physical acting. And then it switches between that and harrowing um very subtle acting like when she is um attempting to get forgiveness uh when she's in that church and she's holding a uh, candle and the candle blows out the look on her face is so tiny but so gut-wrenching when you see it like you can see her hopes fading in that exact moment you can see she's trying to make this effort she's trying to do this thing to turn her life around but it's she feels like she can't and she feels like it was like maybe it's hopeless that there's there isn't any salvation for her. Like to your point about her her acting style, her sort of Chaplin esque uh, acting style. It's yeah, it's basically uh, kind of a spunky, coquettish energy, mm-hmm. and just like wails to the heavens. <laughs> yeah, it's like just like spoiler alert for a fucking fifty year old movie or a sixty year old movie. But like towards the end. Like, okay, towards the end, she gets, she okay, she finds love. She will get married, and she leaves, she sells her house, and has, like, a, uh, three quarters of a million lira in her pocket. And the entire pocketbook. time, you know, this is not going to go this well. This is not going to end well, because this is not that kind of movie. And so the dude, like, she, she's got, like, the money in a satchel, and they go up on, like, a cliff top, and it's beautiful. It's, like, it over, it's, like, overlooking a lake or a river or something, and... Uh, she's just like gabbing on about how great the sunset is and she turns around and hard cut to the dude just sweating bullets and immediately she realizes I was going to get fucking knocked off for my money Yep. and then it's like the most heart wrenching five minutes of acting and the dude doesn't say anything mm-hmm. so like it's yeah go ahead I was going to say like and then she like it's it's like suddenly all like the problems it's, all the shit that she had to deal with the entire movie it all comes out at once every single mm-hmm. thing just pours out of her and even like the guy who was basically took her up here to steal her money possibly kill her is like afraid of her because she's so emotional all of a sudden because she's letting all of these things out 
And I, I love that moment where like he looks genuinely afraid of what she's going to do, even though yes. he's the he's the 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 violent actor here. But it like like seeing this real human emotion is so un- unnerving and so disturbing for him. Yeah, basically that her reaction basically raises up like a moral mirror to what he was about to yeah. do. It's like, oh wait, hold on, maybe killing someone is bad. <laughs> and and I think like like that moment is what pays off the rest of the Chaplin esque like uh, exaggeration earlier because she feels like this really pure character. Like even when she's doing things that you might think are kind of like not the greatest things to do, or even sure. when um she's she's being hurt when she's um being mistreated she has this kind of optimistic air to her like she has this sense that things are going to go right and then you finally see that collapse like the idea that things are not going to go right things are going to go worse and it's a perpetual collapse because things go from not getting better to getting actively worse yeah (laughs) um but then the end like you you just stated like uh the end of the film is her walking away she's broke she sold her house so she doesn't have a house anymore homeless she doesn't have any of her clothes she has none of her possessions anymore she just has whatever she's wearing and she theoretically somehow has to get back to her like one friend who seemed to actually kind of like her who is miles and miles away at this point but a i think it's a wedding party starts walking through and they're playing music and they're dancing around her and she smiles and i it was i don't have the words to to describe that moment it was so purely wonderful and joyous it's like a moment of pure hope yeah which is which i don't say lightly no i I think like it's in a movie that didn't earn it it would feel cheap and i think it's this movie's credit that hit um it feels entirely right and i there was no cynicism left in me by that time so it just worked perfectly and it just felt it's one of my favorite movie endings i've ever seen to be frank uh, let's make a game a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, Giulietta Messina was Federico, Federico Fellini's wife. I think, uh, well, this is like an incredible motion picture to begin with. And I think one of the things that makes it great is like this incredible amount of trust that is put in Messina as a performer. Because she shoulders a lot of this movie. Yeah. Like, like the other performances are fine, but this is a showcase like the breadth and depth of the shit on screen coming from the same human being and it's 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 fucking it's fucking phenomenal i would put it up there with like like things like laura dern in inland empire for me or um uh possession um ajani isabella johnny yeah like that level of like wow i can't believe i just saw someone do all that um and yeah and she likes she and she does like Good acting choice at the end, end, end as well, where she doesn't just stare down the barrel of the camera. She kind of glances away. She doesn't. It's like I feel like a movie that didn't earn it to continue with what you said just has her look down the barrel. Whereas this movie, the fact that like, she kind of she glances, glances at the audience every once in a while. Yeah, but it's not just "Hey, do you get it?" kind of right. looking ahead. No, it's like it's like she can hardly believe that she's smiling herself. Yeah. Man, this is a good fucking movie. Yeah, it's a really good fucking movie. Which, uh, to be honest, I like I said, I didn't expect going in um, because I mean, I expect it to be to be perfectly well, to be perf- perfectly well. That's not how you say that. To be perfectly fine, um, because like Frederico Fellini seems like a very good director. Seems like he knows what he's doing. Um, yeah, 
I mean, yeah, I mean, slowly, slowly but surely, we will we will cease uh, cease being uh, Feder- uh, Fellini Philistines, and we will uh, see more of his movies. Although I think this is it for his entries in the tournament. Uh, is La Strada or La Dolce Vita not on it? Uh, La Strada is not on there, and La Dolce Vita is not on there. So well, I think this is it for Mister Fellini. Well, but uh, although I think he's going to go forward though, so we'll we'll see him again. Yeah, he's definitely going forward now. I mean, we did we we did like a couple like a couple of like a couple of yahoos uh, send Inception to the second round over eight and a half. Yeah, but uh, I, I but, still uh, believe in that one. Yeah, I still believe in it as well. But uh, this time around, uh, uh, Knights of Kiberia thoroughly demolishing Leon the Professional, knockout in like the second round. This was not a fight. This is a massacre. Absolutely. So good movies so that, besides uh, one of them, but the rest of them besides one of them. Are pretty like, fucking great movies. If I'm being generous, the most generous thing I could say is that it did not age well. <laughs> we all know that pedophilia was fine in the 90s. Uh, anyway, Anyways. that means we are done for uh, this episode's uh, matchup. So that means in round two, we will have No Country for Old Men versus Knights of Kiberia. Ooh. That's a. I actually, like, looking at that, I don't know which I choose. Well, thankfully, you have, like, three years to think about it. Jesus, yeah. So, uh, so what do we have uh, next time? Well, I'm glad you asked, uh, hypothetical listener. What we have uh, next time for uh, Middle Brown Madness, the next two matchups. The Dark Knight Rises versus Andrei Rublev. Huh. And Wally versus The Truman Show. Huh. That's some matchups. Those are definitely matchups. Uh, what I am kind of shocked by is that... Um, what do you call it? I was the one who had to add Solaris, but Andre Rublev is on this list. It seems like it's already on there. That's true. Yeah, that is weird, huh? Huh. Stalker is as well, which makes sense. But I would not, for some reason, I would think that like Solaris and Stalker are the two that you go for. Not really Andre Rublev, but maybe it's because Andre Rublev is where you start. Maybe, and I, I it's his most grounded, most like, hey, I've seen movies before. I know how movies work. But Solaris was like remade. Like, it's got cachet. Yeah, but um, no one really liked the remake that much either. I mean, I thought it was pretty decent, but... I, th- I, think, I think I think Solaris I think that is too movie's... slow, to be frank. I think Solaris is far too slow. The Tarkovsky Solaris? Yes. Huh. Well, I guess we won't ever get to that because the movie is not on this list. I added it. I just said this. Oh, right. Gotta I keep did. up. I guess I do have to keep up on yeah, my no, own we're show. We're definitely watching that shit. I fucking love Solaris. It's against the Dark Knight. That is... I'll be to be fair. I think that's actually a more difficult matchup than I would care to admit. But uh, Solaris is <laughs> Solaris is fucking something else. You heard it here. You heard it here first. Christopher Nolan, a better director than Andre Tarkovsky. <laughs> Fuck off. So I mean, uh, I guess according to the top to the two fifty, isn't he? Well, we, we've already we've already anointed uh, Christopher Nolan, King uh, of the our, Middlebrow, our our greatest living Middlebrow filmmaker. So yes. uh, so we'll see how Andre Tarkovsky sizes up. Because uh, he'll be going like both both movies are going up against Christopher Nolan movies. <laughs> They're both going up Jesus. against Batman movies. <laughs> wow, this list is is weird, Derek. Hey, yep. Have we ever talked about how weird the fucking IMDb list is? Like, goddamn. I, I think our first four episodes were mostly man. This fucking list is weird. Yeah, this is a weird list. So now we got to take care of the show's back matter. I think. Uh, speaking of sponsorship from Brad Dragon. <laughs> You gotta get one every episode. I've that, got to. That, ki- that, that's our. Uh, that's what she said of this podcast. 
It's like, oh, I got to take care of some back matter. Sponsored by Bad Dragon. Um, but what are we doing? Do we say like what we do now or like how to find us or whatever? Well, that's what I'm about to do. Cool. Thank um, you. I appreciate it. All right. So, all right. So if you want to get in contact with us, if you want to send us some, what, what is it we want? We want recipes. Re- we, are, we want recipes, preferably with vegan options. Preferably and we want hate mail. And we want hate mail. We want, we, we want to be cursed out. And uh, so if you feel like sending us either of those things, you can send it to uh, madness at gmail.com. Alternately, you could invade our DMs with hate mail at uh, Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Derek underscore G, and you can find Isabel on Twitter at Space Jam Fan. And uh, I think we're on Spotify now, and I also think we are on Stitcher now, as uh, are all the other shows on the uh, Noise Space Podcast Network run by our friend Matt. Nice uh, swag. That's we've cool. never we've never plugged them. This is the fourteenth episode, and we've never once said that we are on the noise uh, sp- the noise space podcast network. Uh, a bunch of other shows that you can listen to, including. Old- <laughs> Sorry, I, I went to our uh, to our iTunes page, and we have a yeah. new review, Derek. Hey, yeah. What does it say? Um, it's by Ass Eater One Official. Sure. And um, Ass Eater One Official says, "Now that's a podcast." Two stars, and the uh, content of the review is, I am going to destroy Mark Marin." <laughs> so, I'll be frank, don't entirely know what uh, to make of that review, but we appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> yep. Any, all the reviews count, even the really cryptic ones. Um, oh shit, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I, I apologize, I, I just couldn't help myself. I, I saw it, and my laughs came out of me. Oh yeah, um, noisespace.xyz, uh, yes. um, uh, Bespoke Artisanal Podcasts, a truly independent podcast network. Maybe you've heard of some of the other shows, including uh, Stuck in the Middle with You. That's a show I, I do slash did with my friend Juan Burkeen. And uh, maybe you're familiar with Henry Kissinger's Pokemon Going to Die, which is a politics podcast. The most, the most popular of the podcasts on the, on the network. I believe so. And there's also all sorts of shit. Yeah, um, a lot of cool stuff. So, noisespace.xyz. Get on it. Question mark? That's a... No, exclamation point. Exclamation point, yes. Get on it, exclamation point. That's a fucking ringing, ringing endorsement there. Endorsement. <laughs> I don't know why I turned into a cartoon gangster for a second. That's a ringing like endorsement. The, the bullets from Roger Rabbit all of a sudden. God damn. Maybe, this is going... Like we th- we we stayed on the rails pretty well for most of the episode, so it's just as well that it goes completely off the rails towards the end. So maybe so at the risk of uh, at the risk of making this uh, metaphorical train like loop de loop into a ditch and causing fatalities, I think we should sign off. So if you would, I really thought for some reason you, I don't know why I thought this, but like maybe because it's on my mind lately, I thought you were going to talk about uh, the Kentucky Derby's politically correct decision. I don't really follow the I don't really follow the ponies, Isabel. Yeah. Okay. Did you did you at least see the tweets? I you're a fan of tweets. You love tweets. I, I I'm for them generally. Um. Well, uh, at the Kentucky Derby, this is uh-huh. this is probably getting all cut. But um, <laughs> at the Kentucky Derby, um, there was a horse that won, and then another horse. Yeah. What's um, it called? A fucking overdue rent or washing machine. No, it, it was called like like the like good winner or something. It was like literally called something like that, like, awesome like Papa's Big Money or something. <laughs> Papa's Big Money. <laughs> um, but 
So he won, and there was a second a second place horse because you know there's like more than one horse on the track. Otherwise, it'd be Generally. a pretty boring race. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that the first place horse bumped the second place horse, so he was disqualified. So second place horse technically became the winner, and he was he was called like like Country House or something. I think there was. <laughs> and um, old, old folks home. A- after this happened, the president of the United States of America, Donald Trump, <laughs> tweeted the following: "The Kentucky Derby decision was not a good one." It was a rough and tumble race on a wet and sloppy track. Actually, a beautiful thing to watch. Only in these days of political correctness could such an event occur. The best horse did not win the Kentucky Derby. Not even close. (sighs) I love that, like, following the rules of a sport is now political correctness, and it applies to horses as well as people. Oh, God. Now I'm just imagining one of those old programming manuals. But instead of like, you know, C++ for dummies, it's like political correctness for horses. For horses. Uh, Make sure your horse stops saying racial slurs. I feel like of all the animals, horses probably say the most racial slurs. In in a horse. In in English. I think, here's my theory. Horses can talk English and they're constantly saying racial slurs whenever they're running. I mean, they're rich. Horses are rich. I mean, as far as animals go. Oh man, this bit would have been great in like 1992 on like 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 HBO one night one night stand or some shit. It sounds like a George I, Carlin bit. This literally sounds like a bit that George Carlin would have done. That is the most insulting thing you've ever said to me in my entire life. Thanks for that, Derek. Am I wrong I just, though? I was just trying to talk about racist horses, but you're over here. I mean, I guess like police dogs are probably more racist, but then like horses. But I'm saying like as a whole, like I think dogs in general aren't racist. <laughs> But I think that, like, horses in general are kind of racist. Say your name so this misery can end. Um, I've been Isabel Arf. And I've been Derek Gade. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Horses are racist and everyone knows it. Good night. <laughs> Good night, I guess.